to us. Fires, touchdown Miami. Waddle snuck into the end zone of Miami. Boy, tight throw, tight window. They had to get that touchdown on that play. They get it. What is up, Dolph fans? And welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield. And on today's show, it's the last word on the Ravens. Ryan Mink of Ravens.com will join us. We'll hear from the assistant coaches. We'll get to your questions on the Twitter mailbag. We'll pick the week two games. And we'll also stop by college for three games to keep an eye on for scouting purposes this weekend across the NCAA landscape. From the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex, this is the Drive Time Podcast. It is a football Friday. Let's go ahead and jump in as we do weekly with our guest of the week from Ravens.com, Ryan Mink. And joining me now on the Drive Time podcast is the editorial director for the Ravens, Ravens.com, as well as the YouTube channel, video content, all kinds of stuff over there. Ryan Mink. Mink, thanks for joining us today, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're happy to have you on. I thought it was I talked to you about this off the air a little bit, how you guys used to have Wink Martindale. Your name is Mink. You talked about how the Steelers called Minka Fitzpatrick Mink. So I guess you're kind of in good company there with the namesake, it sounds like, across the league. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the Wink-Mink combo the past <laughs> several years here in Baltimore. But uh, yeah, that, that everybody's, it's just Mink. I, I always say it's Mink like the fur, you know. That's, that's how I always introduce myself. So nobody calls me by my first name. That's good to know. I had uh, JT here, our, uh, one of our videographers, let me know on that. So good to have uh, some like-minded thinking here in the building. Former <laughs> uh-huh. Ravens You guys stole Dolphins. our guy, JT. <laughs> yeah, oh, did. gosh. He's a stud. Dagger. He's a superstar, man. We love having him here. Um, so we got a big game on Sunday coming up. A couple of 1-0 football teams. And I want to just kind of get the, I call it the last word on the opposition. So this week, the last word on the Ravens. And who better to have than yourself? And we start as we do every single episode. I'm sure you do the same thing at the quarterback position. I watched the Jets game, and they had the three splash plays down the field, the big touchdowns, his effective scrambling, as he does every single week, it seems like. I'm just, it's kind of what you expect from Lamar Jackson, but we know that last year he ended the season injured, and I just wanted to get your take on his opening day performance, how he looked in the summer coming off that injury, and what we can expect this Sunday uh, against the Dolphins. Yeah, I thought that Lamar had a really good offseason. You know, he, he added... 15 to 20 pounds of muscle, which was a really big story here in Baltimore. Uh, you know, and the question was, okay, does this make him slower? Does this make him faster? Is he better? You know, is he going to lower the shoulder on some people? You know, he didn't do a lot of running in, in week one. You saw the, he eluded a couple of sacks on one play, kind of jumping out of defender's arms. So the elusiveness is still there. It's confirmed. Um, and I can confirm that he's still very fast uh, from the practice field. Um, but, you know, I think he didn't play at all in the preseason. I think there was a, a little bit of a rust factor for the offense as a whole uh, against the Jets. And, and mind you, you know, when, when you all play the Jets, too, I think they have a pretty good defense. Yeah, so the Ravens got out of the gate offensively a little bit slowly. Uh, but the thing about Lamar is, you know, and, and this is with any superstar player, it, it takes one play. Yeah. Right. And you see that, especially with defenses really wanting to slow down the Ravens on the ground because, you know, Baltimore is a run-heavy team, Lamar's legs. Everybody's kind of all eyes around Lamar and slowing him down, make sure he doesn't beat him with the legs. But that opens up 
big play opportunities. And uh, for the Ravens, it was a really big deal offensively to hit on those, you know, especially after trading Marquise Brown this offseason. There were a lot of questions about the Ravens' big play ability. Uh, to go over the top to Devin DuVernay uh, for the first touchdown and then Rashad Bateman just screaming down the middle of the field for a 55-yard touchdown. Uh, those were big confidence boosters, I think, for the wide receivers, for Lamar, and the offense as a whole. Yeah, that scramble you talked about early on, uh, that was one of those plays where I'm just kind of watching and, you know, I'm not emotionally invested into a replay of Ravens and Jets, but I, I like kind of stood up and like, geez, man. This yeah. guy, he, he is so unique in the way he does things. And then you also mentioned the downfield passing ability. It reminds me of like the Chiefs a couple of years ago when it, they might have three quarters of, of sluggishness, but it took one quarter for them to just put 28 on you and kind of put you away the way the Warriors and Steph Curry do uh, right. in, in basketball. So it's, I'm curious to see how it works out on Sunday. But this, this Ravens offense like Lamar, is kind of an enigma in and of itself. And I think he's a big part of that because nobody spends less time in 11 personnel, your three receiver sets, plenty of two back, two tight ends, sometimes right. both. And so I, the way I want to ask this is to kind of educate someone who might be relatively green in terms of the X's and O's of the game. How would you describe the design of this Ravens offense and where does it really challenge a defense? The Ravens offense in large parts runs through its tight ends. You yeah. know, when you have Mark Andrews, he really is a, a tight end wide receiver kind of hybrid, you know, because of how good he is as a pass catcher. Uh, you know, he's on the field for 75 to 80% of the snaps, but the Ravens also feel really confident in the rookie tight end. Isaiah likely uh, got four targets, didn't catch any passes, but he was a preseason superstar. Um, he's seeing the field a good amount. Nick Boyle's a blocking tight end. Josh Oliver. I mean, the Ravens kept five tight ends on their initial 53 man. So that tells you a little bit about how much they value tight ends. So they're much more likely to go in that direction with, you know, two tight end sets, even three tight end sets than they are to put three wide receivers on the field, just because that's not really where the depth and the strength of this offense lies. Um, and because the Ravens feel confident in the blocking and receiving abilities of their tight ends, it also makes it hard for defenses to know what's coming because they are so run heavy. So you put these tight ends on the field and they're thinking, well, we have to go heavy here, prepare to run, stop the run. But then those tight ends can go out and, and you know, catch the ball, obviously. So uh, the Ravens like to kind of keep defenses honest by using their tight ends a lot. And it certainly afforded them the opportunity to bring in another first round draft pick and spend that pick in the Marquise Brown trade on Tyler Linderbaum. And you guys have, you know, Zeitler and Morgan Moses and Ben Powers feels like they've been there forever and some some real mainstays on the offensive line. We'll see about left tackle. I'm curious to get your take on what happens there if it's Patrick McCarry on Sunday, but also rookie center Tyler Linderbaum, who was that Marquise Brown draft pick trade selection in the end of that first round. Can you tell us about those two guys, two guys that I'm not really familiar with, Linderbaum and McCarry? Yeah, so Tyler Linderbaum is a, a, a rookie first-round pick, like you said, smaller stature guy. So I think he's the thing that he has to prove is you know, he was the smallest offensive lineman in the draft. But this is a, a former, you know, championship wrestler in high school. I mean, leverage, you know, he's adept at using his leverage. And he was kind of a, you know, some people regarded him coming out of Iowa as a generational mm -hmm. center prospect, right? That like his feet are so good that, uh, you know, the way he uses leverage is so good that he's going to be uh, a starter and a potential pro bowler for years to come. What he does is he allows the Ravens to run different to kind of broaden their their run uh, style, right? So they can pull him, use him out in space. Uh, he really helps them get to the second level a lot better. So the Ravens feel like, okay, 
yeah, maybe he's a little bit smaller, but he comes with these advantages that opens up more possibilities. And the Ravens are always looking to evolve and, and you know, take the next step as a running team, really historically good running team. Um, so then at left tackle, I mean, the big question is whether Ronnie Stanley sure. comes back to play this week, right? I mean, that's been a huge issue for Baltimore's offense over the past year and a half, right? He played one game last year and opted to get a second surgery on his ankle. He's still rehabbing. He's at, he's at practice. So he practiced on a limited basis three times last week, uh, started with a, a limited practice on Wednesday. If the Ravens get him back on the field for this game, that's huge. Sure. I mean, we're talking about a, a 2019 pro bowler, all pro player, one of the best left tackles in the game. That's certainly a possibility uh, for him to suit up. So, you know, if that happens, the loss of Jawan James really isn't, you know, a big issue. Uh, if he doesn't, then I agree. It's It would probably be Matt Patrick McCary, who stepped in last week for Jawan James after he went down. And McCary is an interesting guy. He plays all five offensive line positions here in Baltimore. I mean, he really is the backup center, right? And then he also doubles. Last year he played, uh, I don't know, eight to ten games at right tackle. Uh, he plays both guard spots, and now he's at left tackle. I mean, how many times do you see a backup center yeah. stepping in as your starting <laughs> left tackle? It's crazy. It um, and, and he does it at a, at a, a you know starter level, right? And so uh, it, he's extremely valuable to the Ravens, just a, a grinder, tough, hard-nosed guy that I think, uh, you know, he'll have his hands full against a, a very good Dolphins defensive front, but he's somebody that can certainly – uh, I think you feel comfortable going into the game with him. Yeah, I saw Linderbaum. He had some really impressive blocks in that opener against the Jets. We've got Ryan Mink, Ravens.com. Want to go to the defensive side here real quick. And, you know, you have a new DC. We talked about Wink Martindale with, with Mink on the podcast mm-hmm. here and the, the funny namesake. Um, but Mike McDonald, what does he bring to the table on defense? Yeah, a, a, a pretty different guy uh, from Wink, both uh, demeanor-wise and, and I think, um, you know, what he his game – calling his play calling is, is different than wink. You know, wink was, he just wanted to blitz you and then blitz you some more and then blitz you again after that. I mean, you guys are all familiar with that over there with the cover zero blitzes. Um, so, you know, uh, whereas Mike McDonald is, you know, he's, his foundation is in the Ravens scheme, right? So it's not like he changed a lot of the Ravens scheme. This is where he kind of grew up and, and, you know, built his defensive philosophy. So it's not that things are wildly different, but the play calling is a little uh, even, a little more balanced, I would say, in terms of how much the Ravens are blitzing. And kind of the big change for the Ravens is that at safety, you know, the Ravens signed Marcus Williams and then they drafted Kyle Hamilton in the first round. They already had Chuck Clark, an established starter here for the past two seasons. And so those are three really good safeties. Uh, that the Ravens want to get involved in their defense. So the Ravens have been doing a lot more under Mike McDonald, three safety looks, dropping Chuck Clark down into the box, you know, in week one. Um, and, and they just have, I think, a lot more ball hawking ability now with kind of the Marcus Williams, who's a true free safety. Yeah, I was noticing on the tape that if, if there's a tip or overthrow, Marcus Williams, Kyle Hamilton, that secondary is going to pick it off, and you have to be really precise to to mm-hmm. not turn the ball over. And it, it's so amazing to me how you guys have been able to just kind of maintain the status quo despite the injuries you've suffered the last couple of years to that position because you're so deep in that secondary. So you kind of answered uh, one of my follow-ups there. But I will go back to this because you talked about not blitzing quite as much 
but you still gave the Jets hell up front, man. That your you, that Ravens yeah. front is is absolutely a handful. And so I just wanted to see if you could tell us about some of the guys up front because to me, like Matabuke popped. Uh, we all know about Odafe Owe. He's a stud of a pass rusher. Who else mm-hmm. do we have to know about up front coming into this game? Yeah, the, the defensive line. Honestly, I mean, there was a lot of talk about the Ravens secondary maybe being one of the best in the league. Um, but the defensive line, I think, when all is said and done, might be the Ravens' strongest position group defensively. Uh, so you mentioned, I mean, another guy, Calais Campbell, yeah. a, a grizzled, you know, veteran. Um, you know, and Calais isn't like a huge sack guy, but he'll absolutely push the pocket, and he can, you know, he got a sack in the opener chasing Joe Flacco out of bounds. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he is what he is. He's a, a multi-time pro bowler. Um, Justin Matabike, like you said, is a third-year defensive tackle who's a, a, a very kind of um, twitchy, you know, penetrating kind of defensive tackle. You know, he's trained with Aaron Donald in years past. That's kind of the guy he looks up to and says, I want to be in that mold. And he has just freakish athleticism, maybe not to Aaron Donald's level, uh, <laughs> but he, he is an athlete. And so Matabike is a, a big handful um, and then you have some other young players like a Broderick Washington, who's really good. Uh, you know, it remains to be seen Travis Jones, the third round rookie who was very impressive here in training camp in the preseason. He returned to the field yesterday uh, coming off a hyperextended knee. So whether he's able to play is a question mark. And then another dude who got really high grades uh, in week one was Michael Pierce. I mean, he's a nose tackle who the Ravens re-signed this year. Um, he's just a big dude. You think of a nose tackle as your run stuffer, but uh, Pierce really showed previously with the Vikings that he has a lot of pass rush potential. And we saw that in week one, getting after Joe Flacco. I mean, it's just waves on waves right now with this defensive line and all these guys, which all these guys can get after the passer, which was a, a kind of a bugaboo for the Ravens defense in years past. They just weren't able to get pressure inside, which really put everything on the outside linebacker's shoulders. And, and that's changed this year. It's funny how like certain teams have positions they're always good at, and I think the Ravens have a few of them. But you know, I go back to the Haloti Nada days. You guys have always been so good at that defensive tackle, nose tackle spot. And watching Michael Pierce on tape, like he popped big time. And is yeah. it six foot three fifty five? Like what a crazy build and the way he plays. It's it's fun to watch, man. He's a he's a beast. Yeah, I mean he's just got that kind of like crazy strength. Yeah, it's just like this yeah. grown man. Like he'll just forky lift you with one arm, kind of. I mean everybody talks about it on the Ravens offensive line just how crazy strong he is that little hip toss move yeah he's he's a beast man we'll be keeping an eye on him for sure I want to close up with this real quick if you can wink uh good matchup on Sunday I think uh Dolphins on the road to face the Ravens I want to hear how you think the Ravens can win this game what they have to do and how the Dolphins can win this game what they have to do to get the victory yeah great question Honestly, I think for the Ravens, it comes down to handling that Dolphins blitz. I mean, we all saw it last year. It totally flummoxed Baltimore's offense. There was one play in particular last year that people don't really, they might not remember. And it was early on in the game. It might have been the Ravens' first series. And Lamar (laughs) took a deep shot to Sammy Watkins down the middle of the field. And he had him. I mean, it was one-on-one. Sammy was there kind of looking over his shoulder. And just, I don't know if he lost in the lights or what happened. But it just landed like barely out of bounds and I think the Ravens felt like had that play been made that might have been a different game right and, and the Dolphins seemed like okay maybe we can't send the blitz every <laughs> blitz every play right and so for the Ravens to win they're gonna have to handle that blitz a whole lot better than they did last year uh they're gonna have to hit some of those plays over the top like they did you know in week one against the Jets so I think that's a huge key for Baltimore and then conversely 
for the Dolphins, I think it's taking care of the ball and also hitting a big play. I mean, the Ravens' defense really didn't get challenged deep too much by Joe Flacco, which was kind of surprising. If Tua, he's certainly got the weapons, right? I mean, if he wants to hit Tyreek Hill deep, Tyreek Hill will get open deep. Right? I mean, he'll he'll have chances, and the Ravens have to put a cap on that with Marcus Williams and, and with these cornerbacks coming back and, and really make sure that the Dolphins can't flip a game in an instant um, with a big play. It should be a fun one, man. I'm pretty excited about this game. Been looking forward to it for a while now. Of course, you focus one game at a time, but this game was, you know, that that game last year, the rematch, the fact that there's kind of this strange, at least from our perspective, rivalry because the Ravens have ended some of our postseason runs a couple times in the last couple of decades, and it's just something about playing the Ravens, man. It's always like a litmus (laughs) test uh, for this Dolphins team. So great stuff. Ryan Mink, Ravens.com. You can follow him at Ryan Mink on Twitter. Thank you so much for your time today, Mink. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. Anytime. And away he goes. Let's go ahead and take our first break, and we'll come back here on the other side and hear from the Dolphins' assistant coaches. That's next here on the Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. We got plenty more to come your way here on this edition of the Drive Time Podcast, but I'm so pumped for this segment. I know I've said this before, but assistant coach media is such a great learning tool each time, and we got a ton of good stuff today. And I want to start here with defensive coordinator Josh Boyer and do two sound bites here from Josh. First, he was asked about Cater Kohu, how the scouting process went, and there was a bit of a string of follow-ups about Josh's track record of getting production out of UDFAs and late-round draft picks alike. And of course, we preface this by saying that Cater has been impressive all offseason and in Game 1, But it is still game one, so I want to make it perfectly clear here that we are not automatically placing him in the same bucket as Malcolm Butler, J.C. Jackson, John Jones, and Nick Needham. But he's off to a great start, and Coach told us a bit about the process of finding Cater and developing these corners that have gotten passed over in the draft. Great, great stuff here today from the Dolphins' D.C. Let's listen in. I remember it very well. Uh, It was actually the day before the draft, if if I remember correctly. Um, usually, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of players that you look at going into the draft. Um, and for me, I usually always save the corners for last. Um, uh, I, I, I spend a lot more time, uh, on the front and then I go to the backers, um, you know, off the ball backers, on the ball backers, um, you know, spend time with the rushers. Uh, then I go to the safety group and then usually the corner group is the last group that I hit. And, um, I believe that was right before an OTA session, if, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I saw him on film, and, you know, I got, I got a list of every position, and then you just start moving guys up and down your list where you got them. And I saw him, and I was like, you know, I I like this kid, and, you know, and I, I need to talk to him. And it was a matter of could I fly out there before – or, you know, could we just do it on Zoom? And uh, we had a Zoom conversation. Um, it was very clear to me, you know, um, how I th- thought he would fit in this defense. And um, we had a good conversation. I had a good conversation with his agent. Um, you know, and then it came to the process of, um, you know, talking to our scouts, who they all have their evaluations, and talking to, um, you know, Chris, obviously, 
Um, in fact, I mentioned something to Chris uh, out on the field when we were, you know, and Chris has got a lot going on. I mean, he's got thousands and thousands of guys. That, you know, I mean, he's looking at the other side of the ball, too, before the draft. So he's probably looking at me like, hey, what, who are you talking about? Um, but, uh, no, Chris was awesome. And he was like, you know, he goes, okay. He goes, I'm going to get on that. And then, uh, really, Marvin Allen did an awesome job uh, when it came to post-draft. Uh, to make sure that we were able to secure caters. So, it, you know, it, it, it's a group process uh, to get things done. Obviously, we're happy that he's here. Um, and, you know, we're looking forward to working with him, and hopefully he can grow and get better uh, as we move forward. But, uh, yeah, and, I mean, that's usually how the process works. Um, you know, you basically you evaluate a bunch of players. Uh, you kind of move them up and down, you know, where you see fit, and then – Really, it's really important to kind of make contact uh, if you haven't. Um, you know, I would say, you know, over the years, a lot of guys, like Keon's a good example. Um, you know, I actually went to Western Carolina to work him out. And, um, you know, um, it was one of those deals that, uh, you know, I had a good meeting there. Uh, and then we ended up drafting him uh, late in the seventh round. Um, and some guys... Uh, you just you do the workouts. Some guys you, you call and talk to. Um, you know, Nick Needham would have been a guy that really a lot of that talk was with his agent. And, you know, and sometimes when you find out that, you know, there's not a lot of interest there, you're going, okay, we're, we're probably the best offer then. You know, so everybody has a different story, different path. I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of guys that do their due diligence of, uh, you know, going through and looking at guys. Um, and it's always, um, I think, just, uh, you know, a little bit better when you can evaluate a guy and put him in your system, and then that checks out with the guys that have already evaluated him. So it, it makes that for a, a little bit smoother process. I know that was kind of a long-winded answer there, but that good. that's kind of what happened. If you guys go watch that on the YouTube channel and it's full, you'll hear like, eight reporters trying to get a follow-up question and they asked him about what trait from Cater stands out that uh, made you like him so much and then the follow-up to that was what trait is common among all these guys that you have uncovered as gems as UDFAs and he was great in both of those answers but basically told us there is one common trait but I'll keep it to myself and I was I tweeted about that like that's the best spoiler or cliffhanger or I should say cliffhanger since that middle episode of Better Call Saul when spoiler when uh, Howard came over to Jimmy and Kim's house. Uh, I won't tell you what happened after that, but it was a great cliffhanger there from Coach and good stuff. Let's finish up with Coach Boyer here about the Ravens' heavy personnel. I asked him about how do you prepare for a team that goes 12, 22, 21 personnel the vast majority of the time in a league where it's all about 11 personnel, spread it out, widen the field. Here's Coach Boyer. I'm glad you asked because, like, I mean, I, I get really excited, like, you know, watching the Ravens and, and, the, and the, the job that Greg Roman does, uh, you know, like, I really feel like this is an un, unsung coach in the NFL. Like, uh, he, he game plans the run and uses multiple personnel groupings. He game, he game plans the run game like most people game plan the passing game. And he's done it for a long time. I believe he's been in the league for 25 years, if I'm not mistaken. He's, I know he's been in Baltimore for eight. Um, but I would say that, you know, he's done it with Colin Kaepernick at San Francisco. He did it with Tyrod Taylor at Buffalo. Like, Lamar Jackson, who is a special talent. Um, he can run. 
He's physical. He can throw. He can make the reads. Um, I would say, you know, Baltimore and what they do schematically, um, I've stayed here late, you know. You know, I've been here real late the last two nights for sure. Um, they, they make it hard on you. Um, they can do a variety of different things out of all personnel groupings. And um, they have every run known to man. They really do. And they execute it well, which, again, you know, whether you run blitz zero or, you, you know, you run all the runs, like it, ultimately it comes down to execution. That's what it comes down to. And they're going to be really well coached. They're going to be really well prepared. They got good players across the board. Uh, so, we're, you know, it's a real big challenge for us this week, and uh, we're looking forward to it. From defense to special team, let's go next to Coach Crossman, who told us about Thomas Morstead's debut and taught us something about the punting game that I didn't know about. Here's Coach Crossman. Yeah, what was pleased with Thomas, obviously, you know, performed like the professional, uh, what we expected, um, you know, being aggressive in the plus 50s, able to flip the field uh, when we needed it to be flipped. And then obviously, you know, the gunners making the plays, both tackling, uh, and then the ball in the air on the plus 50. So, you know, really happy with, with that part of the game. You aggressive in the plus 50s. What, what does that mean exactly? You know, where we want the ball, you know, you, know, you, know, you kick the ball at the 15-yard line, it's going to be a fair catch, and you, you, know, you want more out of that. So trying to be more aggressive, get the ball further down the field. Let's go to the offensive side of the football and OC Frank Smith. He was posed a great question about utilizing pre-snap motion, but his answer, like we've kind of come to expect here on the podcast with the assistant coaches, it covered more than just that as he walked us through the process of planning, putting together concepts, things of that nature. But the genesis of the question was about utilizing pre-snap motion, particularly with Tyreek Hill. Uh, good question. I think as far as the advantage, uh, it also is more of what, is, what does that movement do to the defense and then what is their adjustment? Um, I think you, you deliberately have to do – you just don't – some people might just do things to do things. We look at when we do something, why are, what reaction are we, gonna, we trying to get? Like what do they do? So whenever we try and do things, we're trying to attack a component of the defense and we're using our, our, our skill in, in a way to – uh, use their reaction to our advantage. So I think always you're seeing and studying and you're realizing, okay, if we do this, here's the reaction we anticipate. If we don't get that, then it's probably this. So now quarterback, you're thinking, here's your progression. You can see now how you teach a passing concept. So we try and use uh, everything strategically um, when we're moving people. That's why we move people so often. Um, so I don't think it's too just – relegated to this offense, I think that that's the history between uh, Mike and his time with Kyle and their time in San Francisco and wherever they've been is that understanding how motion uh, creates challenges to the defense and then using it uh, to our advantage. That's really what we try and do, not necessarily like if we did this with him, it's like if we use him in this capacity, what reaction are we going to get? How can we use that in our attack to, to build uh, strain on them? I think that's the overall when we try and do stuff. We'll stay on the offensive side of the football here and hear from quarterbacks coach Daryl Bevel. He answered a couple of questions about media narratives on Tua that I found very intriguing, and especially the quote where he said, you know, I don't think it's unfair because everyone's entitled to their opinion, but I do 
feel happy that I'm in the building and I know what's going on and I feel good about where Tua is. I thought that was really cool to hear. Let's go ahead and go to this comment here about Tua's mechanics and what Coach Bevel believes about his mechanics and the work they've done this offseason to improve those things. Yeah, I like where Tua is at mechanically for the for the most part. I'm not saying that we don't have plays that we can that we can improve on, um, but for for the most part, he's done an outstanding job with his footwork. I think you can go back and um, look at some of the plays from last year as opposed to what he's doing this year. Um, it's a major focus for us. He and, and um, he's buying into into the focus, and I think he's done a good job with that. Let's go ahead and close this out with Dolphins safeties coach Steve Gregory. He gave us a great soundbite about Eric Rowe and some context of that. I followed up with coach on something coach McDaniel said earlier this week about Eric Rowe's engagement. Despite the fact that he was down and not available last Sunday, coach Gregory talked about how his professional approach serves to help the entire room, especially those young guys like Javon and Huge. I mean, Eric's a professional football player. I mean, he's, he's a true pro at everything he does on a day-to-day basis. Um, his attention to detail, uh, his support for his teammates, uh, whether he's playing or not playing, you know, he's a team guy. So uh, when you have a guy that's professional, that's experienced, um, that loves the game, and he loves being a part of a team, uh, I think that helps, uh, especially young guys, seeing how he does it and how he approaches everything from a day-to-day basis. There you go. Great stuff as always. What's our acronym? Kawa. Coach's answer was awesome. Not great, Travis. And in this case, Kawa times six. Let's finish up our final segment here. Your questions, the week two picks and the college three pack. All of that's next on the Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Back here on the Friday, Football Friday edition of the Drive Time Podcast. Let's go ahead and get to a couple of your questions, starting here with at Andrew McGuire underscore. How do you feel about the receiver DB matchup for both teams? Do you see it as Miami having an edge on both sides of the ball, given the injuries for the Ravens and a very inexperienced receiver room for the Ravens as well? We covered that a little bit on the podcast yesterday, and I defer what co- to what Coach Boyer said and our, also our guest Ryan Mink today about this offense and how they operate largely through the tight end position. So it's not so much like they're not as good in that area. It's just maybe not as important of a position in terms of how you stack it with your allocated resources. And they're so deep in the defensive backfield that I wouldn't say it's like a significant edge. I do think the Fuller and potentially Peters injuries could make it so. But uh, they, the way they scheme things up, you have to be so precise regardless of who it is because they will take advantage of some tips and overthrows. And, you know, they traded Marquise Brown to that receiver position kind of going back to the first point. And Devin DuVernay stepped up big. Rashad Bateman's a first-round talent that a lot of folks are excited about. And if they can, if the Dolphins can marriage up their pass rush with their coverage this week and keep that same plan from last season on Lamar, we'll have ourselves a fun Sunday again. Up next, at Finsman Coverage, Is it better to blitz Lamar from the middle or from the outside? If you go off the tape last year, the answer is just yes. (laughs) I alluded to this on Thursday as well, that not only do you have to get a rush on him to move him, you have to win a secondary rush somewhere else to cut off those escape routes because, and this is kind of common for a lot of quarterbacks, not a lot of quarterbacks, there's a handful of them that can do this, but Lamar's the, the primary one where you can't just get one guy to win their rush because he can eliminate that guy most of the time. So it's consistently winning not just one gap, but multiple gaps. I would say the answer is probably both. At Tony Figsis, 
what has changed that would lead to a result different than last year? Well, week one gives us a great example of this, and you heard Mink discuss it as well. That pass early in the game to Sammy Watkins. If that goes complete, how does it change the game? Because then the Ravens are up 7-0 early on, and maybe it changes the complexion of the game. Now on Sunday against the Jets, they struggled to get started, but they did hit three deep balls slash splash plays. So that's where I focus. And if they can back us off by hitting a couple of those in this game, that to me would be the change and difference. So there's your mailbag. We'll have another mailbag on the MiamiDolphins.com, the.com. And then, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and pick the week two games now. Week one was not very much of a success. I will let you know that I do reserve the right to make changes over the weekend. And when the Cardinals announced, like, immediately after that I uh, made the picks on the air that Marquise Brown was out, I moved off that pick because no Hopkins, no, or no, uh, Rondell Moore, rather. Uh, Without both of those guys, I thought they wouldn't be able to score enough points. And sure enough, I was wrong about everything. So that injury almost kind of saved me for a dub instead of a loss here on my record. So 9-6-1. and That was a tough week. We had a couple of surprises and um, upsets, but still pretty difficult. But here's the picks this week. I took the Chiefs over the Chargers. We'll see how that plays out. The Patriots over the Steelers this week. Give me the Dolphins over the Ravens. I'll take the Lions over the Commanders. Browns over the Jets. That's a tough one. I don't want to pick either team, but give me the Browns. Tampa Bay over the Saints. That's always a fun rivalry game there, especially the last couple of years as the Bucks keep winning divisions and Super Bowls with the Saints keep winning these games. I'll take the Panthers and Baker Mayfield to get his first win as a Panther with the over the Giants. Give me the Colts over the Jags. The Niners over the Seahawks to bounce back after last week's letdown and the Seahawks kind of maybe a hangover off that short week on the road. Give me Denver over Houston. Las Vegas over the Cardinals. Give me the Rams over the Falcons. The Bengals over the Dak Prescott-less Cowboys. I'll get the Packers back on track over the Bears. How is that Sunday night football? What are we doing? Buffalo over the Titans and Minnesota over the Eagles. How about our college three-pack? Is anybody else really enjoying this college football season like far more significantly than last season, the last couple of years? I do think we still have some of those top-heavy squads like Georgia looks unbeatable again. But that Bama-Texas game feels like the first one we've gotten like that in a long time besides like national championship games. But a September near upset of the top team, I've missed those. It's always like 56-7 to in those games. Like Bama versus Miami last year, for instance. So really enjoying this season. It helps that the Cougs notched their biggest road win since, shoot, Gardner Minshew and that 2018 team beat Oklahoma State in a bowl game. It was a neutral site game, but most of our big wins come at home, so I'll take it anyways. Anyway, here's a three-pack. Number 22, Penn State at Auburn. I couldn't leave this one out and face Juice on Sunday, so Penn State has a cornerback, Joey Porter Jr. That's right, same Joey Porter. Length, strength, recovery speed, ball skills. He's a first-round pick, I think. Defensive end, Adisa Isaac is a nice-looking prospect, and safety, Jair Brown is kind of that jack-of-all-trades and Jaquan Brisker's replacement from last year. Auburn has a load at running back in Tank Bigsby. He could be the first back off the board. Actually, no, he won't. B. John Johnson will be. <clears throat> and then cornerback Nehemiah Pritchett is a feisty ball hawk in that secondary. Number 11, Michigan State is at Washington. It's weird seeing the dogs unranked. I love it. But they've been so good for so long, and they are favored in this game by three points, actually. It's kind of weird. 11 ranked is underdogs on the road against a kind of bad Washington team. And regardless of team success, they always have a bunch of good prospects. 
like offensive tackle Jackson Kirkland's like 360 pounds and can bury you from one punch and just win the rep right away. And then defensive linemen. They always have a defensive lineman that's an absolute stud. This year it's Zion Tupola Fitu. I think I got that right. He's a monster. He can do the, the Vita Vea role, go up in the line of scrimmage, make plays from every gap. And then Michigan State has a receiver, Jaden Reed, and a safety, Xavier Henderson. I'm looking forward to watching for the first time with studying those two particular guys. Number 13, Miami's at number 24, Texas A&M. I wish the Aggies wouldn't have lost last week to keep this matchup a little more exciting, but Miami has quarterback Tyler Van Dyke. I'm not as sold on him as it seems like a lot of folks are, but I'm really curious to watch him play on the road in front of 100,000 fans that are screaming at him. That's going to be exciting. I like running back Henry Parrish's game quite a lot. Offensive lineman Zion Nelson could be a potential first-round pick at some point. He is absolutely a monster and a stud. And then defensive back James Williams plays all over the formation for that Hurricanes defense. Texas A&M has a running back, Devon Achene, who is really explosive, and then safety, Antonio Johnson. Looking forward to getting a look at him this week as well. All right, next time I talk to you will be the post-game show on Sunday night. Don't forget the post-game show on 560 with myself, Seth, and OJ. Until next time, that's going to be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, wherever your podcasts come from. Also, follow me on Twitter at WingfulNFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank podcast, Rick Spielman, this week. You don't want to miss that. I think it might be their best one they've done ever. And also our Wednesday night Twitter Spaces show at 8 o'clock on Wednesdays. The team YouTube channel for media availabilities. Dolphins today. There's some Fish Tank and Drive Time content up there for you as well. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up, Caroline Daddy. Coming home.